Welcome to Piecing It All Together. Hey, I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. We're picking up pieces and putting them all together. Yeah. Today, our theme is In My Lifetime. I texted Randy last week and I said, I have some stuff that I want to tell you about. Do you have anything that's happened in your lifetime that you'd like to talk about? And we've come up with a nice little list. Oh, I wonder if there's something subconscious about the fact that I just learned the song by the Beatles in my life on oh. ukulele. So, um, Did uh, you maybe really? because we said we we're going to do that issue. Yeah, I looked it up and I've learned the song. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Hey, yeah, did I'm, you ever did you ever watch that new documentary that came out about them uh, writing the songs? Not yet, because we haven't had the memory available on our chintzy, <laughs> terrible, horrible satellite internet. But I'm in the rule, you know. I'm I'm one of Joe Biden's targets. I hope for getting the internet, but uh, <laughs> but I haven't had enough space to do that. Understood. Well, I haven't watched it either, but uh, I'm also not a huge fan of the Beatles like you are. So I would just, whenever you do watch it, I'll want to know what you think of it. Well, yeah, I'm, I kind of have a on and off relationship with the Beatles, but. uh... So we're going to be talking about things that have happened in our lifetime that have impacted us or impacted uh, our culture and so uh you've got four i've got three and so i'm excited to hear your list and we can uh trade notes on this but uh randy why don't you get us started since you have four and then we'll alternate back and forth oh boy here we go so we're going down memory lane here and this you know this is going to be an interesting program for old people like myself of course this will be interesting for uh, millennials and Gen Zs, you know, hey, stick around. Maybe you might learn something about, you know, why your parents and grandparents are so messed up. So, yeah, sort of life-changing events, things that changed our life that had probably the most effect on us and maybe even didn't realize it at the time. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, later as you look back, you, you realize, like, what had the most impact. And I think... For me, the first one um, is the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So I was in seventh grade. Um, now, I do barely remember, I was seven years old when, when JFK, John F. Kennedy got shot. And I remember because my cousin, who uh, was like a brother to me and, and was my hero, was really sad. And I you know, kind of figured, oh, there's something going on here. So when I kind of liken that to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in a way when that happened. And uh, for our school, because we were a very um, um, integrated uh, school with probably about uh, um, uh, at least 50% African-American students and probably 40% white students and then maybe a 10% of other kinds of people. Um they called an assembly, and in that assembly, they made the announcement. And immediately, a lot of the black folks began to cry and, and moan. These are seventh graders, right? And eighth graders. We were at that time, junior high was seventh and eighth grade. Wow. And, uh, and one of the white students said, about time somebody shot that 
inward. No. Yeah. And I remember uh, my one of my classmates' older brother, I remember his name, his, it was Bruce Guster, turn around and jacked that guy in the jaw and knocked him down. And it started this big sort of mini race riot, if you will. Oh, my God. And uh, so I wasn't wanting to get in the middle of that. And I went where I went to school, there were riots all the time. Um, especially after basketball games, there would be like a riot. Um, when we played certain schools like River Rouge or Inkster um, and other ones in Michigan there, um, Willow Run High, there would always be like a fight that would turn into a riot, right? Oh, my gosh. So I knew how to escape riots. Like we had a – I had an escape plan. My my oldest sister would say, you know, if, if uh, fighting breaks out, go to the back exit door and I'll meet you there outside, you know. And so uh, I sort of knew how to get out. And so I didn't stick around to see what the melee, you know, brought us. But uh, but I went out and then school was canceled that day anyway. So I was outside and and they I heard someone came outside. They canceled school. So we went back. And uh, now I had been looking up to Martin Luther King Jr. Even in my young age as a seventh grader. And uh, for this to happen, it was it was very. you know, it was a national tragedy, and yet um, white folks reacted very differently because people may not remember right now, everybody likes Martin Luther King Jr., yeah, and yeah. you know, all, all the white people love Martin Luther King Jr. But at the time, you know, the sort of the, the, the conservative right were trying to say he's a communist and you know, a troublemaker and you know, all this kind of stuff, and so. So that affected me very deeply. And then uh, Bobby Kennedy got killed, you know, later, sort of tore at the fabric of my world and kind of brought me into uh, a more like uh, activist mentality, if you will. And so that was the first uh, first thing that really affected my life as a a young person in, in such a deep way. Wow. That is incredible. How about you? Well, my first one is uh, nothing that profound, but somewhat interesting, I think, because it's coming up on its 50th anniversary. Are you aware of the Whole Earth Catalog? Yeah, I've heard of that. All right. So when I was a kid growing up outside Chicago, Illinois, Um, There was an interesting group that was sort of on the fringe of our Christian world called the Jesus people. And uh, they were, you know, know (laughs) for those who don't know, they were sort of an alternative. Japuza, Jesus people USA. Yeah, Jesus, JPUSA. By interacting with some of them my little suburban world was greatly expanded. You know, my parents had moved from rural Ohio and been very much uh, farmers. And so I had that rural agricultural sort of mentality just in my background, even though it wasn't my lived existence at that time. But this whole earth catalog had an extra element to it where it was sort of a, it wasn't a back to the land necessarily, but it was very concerned with like, in what would become environmentalism and and self-sustainability, self-sufficiency, I should say, and sustainability. 
And it was sort of this odd, it was very thick. It wasn't as thick as like a phone book, if you remember how thick those were. But it was this big catalog, but it was basically a collection of other catalogs. So there were seed catalogs and all sorts of stuff, right? So I you, remember- You might need to explain what a phone book is. I know. <laughs> I mean, when you use terms like phone book and payphone, <laughs> it's like, what? what is that? I know it's so I I actually saw a payphone just a couple of years ago like this and it had a phone book cover hanging from it there was no phone book in it and I was like oh my gosh do you remember how hard it was like if you had to look someone up or you were lost to try and figure out like who to call or where you were going it was exactly anyway it was a blast <laughs> from the past so this whole earth catalog was like a catalog of catalogs almost and it was a part of me sort of learning that there was a bigger world out there outside my little existence in um, growing up in ministry. My, you know, my folks were in ministry and we were evangelicals. And so it greatly expanded my world and just my consciousness of what was sort of going on in the world and what people, what were priorities to people. But I think the biggest thing it did for me is that it taught me that there are a whole bunch of things out there that you wouldn't know about. You wouldn't know how to even pursue them um, if you didn't have access to something like this. So the reason this has come on to my, my radar recently is that they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of its beginning, the whole Earth Catalog. And whole earth catalog. Yeah. Uh, I think I'll Google that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> <laughs> What's up next All for right. you? Well, uh, one of the most impactful things in my whole life still uh, was the Vietnam War. Oh. And, you know, I can't even begin to share the depth of importance and of impact that that had on my life to people who didn't experience it. I just don't even know how now I never went to Vietnam. The Vietnam war ended in uh, basically about 1973 mm -hmm. um, when I was a junior in high school, but it began much longer before that. Um, and I was the youngest in my family. So all of my siblings, uh, my brother, uh, had to go in the service. Uh, he was uh, drafted and, and but joined the Air Force instead. So he ended up not going to Vietnam. But both of my sisters had boyfriends who went to Vietnam. Oh um, uh, fiance who went to Vietnam, brothers of them, all of my brother's friends. And so it was sort of like everybody you knew who was a single male was going to Vietnam. Mm. And what did that mean? Well, then we would sit and watch the war on television every evening. So this was, uh, you know, this is part of um, the strategy that the, the United States government has used to disassociate us with the wars that are continual that the United States wages. In fact, someone said the United States is war. And um, by saying, oh, well, we're not going to show those on television anymore. 
But back in the Vietnam War, we would see actual fighting taking place on the screen. And you would see people, uh, medics pulling people out and on stretchers. And, and this was actual footage from people in Vietnam. And, uh, and we would get there and we would watch to see if there was anybody that we knew. I mean, that was sort of how personal it was, is we were watching this real war go on and we were watching to see if anybody we knew would would get their face face flashed across the screen. Oh my. Now the the ramifications of the war are the next impactful thing. And so I'll wait to talk about those, but but you just, you know, I mean, we would hear all these horror stories in, in Vietnam about you know, people coming home in body bags. And one of my brother's friends had his whole platoon uh, was all killed and he had to basically bag them all up and, and um, you know, and, and they would show the, the uh, bodies being loaded in the planes and all of those things back then that they don't show you now because they, right. they want you to be immune to war right. rather than understand the depths of it. And, um, you know, the uh, I, the only thing that I can imagine is, you know, if war was going on on our front doors and in our front porch and in our land, which is part of the uh, also the inoculation is to keep it off our front doors, you know, our yeah. front porch. Um, but, of course, that was what happened in the Native American wars um, was that it was on our in our homelands. That's where it was taking place. So. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, that uh, that was so personal. Uh, war was so personal. And then uh, I've been able to educate myself and and remembering those days and what was being said and, and to recognize how they ramp up for war now and all the sort of manipulative tools that are used to get us to buy into the wars. Um, they were all used in Vietnam and they worked. And so now they use them, you know, for, for every war we're about to enter. And um, we're, we're, we have been in and we are in way more wars than the public realizes. We're involved in interventions, quote unquote, everywhere. Mm. So um, anyway, that was, uh, it was war and it was Vietnam and it was personal. Wow. And so different than the video game presentation that we see of warfare now that's so sanitized exactly yeah Uh and and you know here i was as a young man thinking that i might have to go one day Mm. well i had already decided that i was going to go to canada um before the war came to an end that if i got drafted um that i would go to canada and live so wow 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 Well, my second thing is from that same era. Mine is from May 1973. So I was born in March 1973. So I did not see this cover of National Geographic that has become so famous. But in the last year, the bike industry has sold a record number of bike sales this past year as people have been in lockdown. So they haven't been able to go to the gym or they're not able to use public transit. Uh, Bike sales are just through the roof. And I happen to be a part of that really getting into biking this year. 
And one of the fascinating things is that in my social media stream or in different things, there was in May 1973 on the cover of National Geographic, the cover story was about the bike boom. And so everyone is referencing now currently in this year that this is the biggest year of bike sale increase since 1972-73. So I've been going back and doing some research. Randy, it is so profoundly troubling to me that there was a moment, actually the moment in which I was born, where people were seriously taking seriously the environmental issues, the price of gas, how it involved us in foreign wars, uh, health issues, so many things that are impacted by, you know, this movement. And then to know that that sort of went away and then we got obviously into the 80s and everything that came with that, you know, neon and Reaganomics and right, right. So, else. Yeah, and th this is part of the, the deal, right? It's like the whole boomer generation, well, uh, was able to like sort of open the door to those things, but they couldn't sustain them. We couldn't sustain them. We diagnosed the problem, but we weren't able to really create the solution. And this is why I look to the millennials and the Gen Zs now, and who are very similar in their um, their approach. And they're saying, we don't want our parents' paradigm. We don't want, you know, all of the stuff that you bring yeah. with us. And they're exposing all the different uh, uh, hypocrisies in our society. My big question is, like, what is it going to take for them to sustain these movements so that there is actual societal change. Right. Yeah. And after we see a, a revolution of sorts like that, you see a very, a swing toward materialism, Yeah. you know? And so that's what the 1980s were, you know, the, the dot coms and the, you know, it was just a, a swing toward materialism. You know, this, the reason I think this has impacted me so much this year, it's not just because of this one issue, but there's so many things that I find out that in the seventies were like a thing, but they were almost like a passing fad and they didn't take, nothing was ever implemented. It didn't have any traction. You know, I'll learn about something or I'll lean into something and then I'll find out like, what, this was 73, this was a thing. And you're like, what happened? So I, I, I find myself asking all the time about the late 70s and early 80s, like, what changed? What happened? And uh, I'll, I'll always remember when I was down at Claremont, we had uh, uh, Pando Populous was an environmental conference that was held about ecological disaster and change. And in getting ready for that, I found out that John Cobb, one of the most famous theologians, uh, at my school, had actually written a book in 1971 called Is It Too Late? <laughs> Asking if the, we had already tipped over to change the environmental degradation and, and catastrophe uh, that we were impacting on the earth. And he was asking in 71, is it too late? And I find this out in like 2009. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how, what, how, 
How is that even possible that that was a conversation in the early 70s and he was already asking if it was too late? That's And we're still, like just this past year, we have these global conferences where they're trying to make incremental changes to keep the temperature from going up, you know, only three degrees instead of four or whatever it is. And you're like, how is this a thing? In, yeah. This is all, well, in my, all in my lifetime. Part, part of how this is a thing is that there are always people who write ahead of their times, right? Mm. So society is not ready to deal with the things that they're bringing up, even though they're prophets, so to speak. Mm. And, you know, I have to say that this has sort of been my experience a lot of times. And I was I was leading a uh, an event uh, held by the Carter Center yesterday, and it was about trying to shrink the 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 gap in the division of evangelicalism. And um, I was helping uh, one of my friends, Lisa Sharon Harper, with this. And uh, and someone actually said, "Are you ready for this?" Okay. We need. I need to to expose myself to some kind of a book that would show God's passion for diversity. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, in uh, 2001, I wrote a book called Living in Color, uh, you know, um, uh, embracing God's passion for ethnic diversity. <laughs> oh. And uh, the other thing, my book, Shalom and the Community Creation, I, I wrote it in 2012. You know, got a little bit of traction, not much, you know, but, and then all of a sudden in the last couple of years, it's just taken on a whole second life. And, uh, and then I talked to the publisher and they said, yeah, you've sold more in this past year than any year in the past. And, and I'm like, you know, this is part of the problem is that how do you get people to think about the things if you're a forward thinker? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe you're thinking in some ways ahead of your times. So how do you get people to actually dialogue and be involved in that? They sort of just look at it and then go on. And then, you know, 10 years later, they pick it up and go, oh, let's talk about this. Yeah. And, um, and I think we're gifted um, with people like John Cobb and others who, who are able to sort of like tell the times, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, we need to pay attention to those those voices of also poets, you know, songwriters, and people do that as well. Um, there's this whole segment of society that we sort of, um, uh, I wouldn't say ignore, but we we sort of um, pacify, right? Yeah. Because because as a society, we're not ready to deal with it. We I didn't plan on bringing this up, but you know something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that um, the voices who seem to have an early insight to me are people who are bicultural or bilingual or an experience of navigating between two cultures or two countries or two frames of thought there's an insight the bisexual. That, yeah. There's an insight that comes about any given subject from being somebody who navigates between the existing yeah. realm. You know who you, yeah. You know, who used to write uh, in this vein, write their music was Bruce Coburn. Oh, so the guy's been around forever, but he was yeah. talking about all these issues, the international monetary fund and the 
World Bank and, you know, um, uh, how the U.S. goes and creates shadow governments. And, you know, uh, one of his songs says, you know, maybe the poet is gay, but it'll be heard anyway. You know, better listen to the poets. You need them and you know it, you know. <laughs> and um, this is back in the 80s, early 80s, and that yeah. he starts writing all this stuff, right? So there, huh. there are these segments of society and we need to look for them and lift them up uh, so yeah. that we can save ourselves a lot of heartache and the world a lot of pain. Interesting. Yeah. The reason I thought of Cobb is, you know, he, um, his parents were missionaries. And so he grew up in Japan, I believe it was, but later in his life, he really invested in China, educating Chinese um, university students. And he said things 10, 15 years ago, I heard him say things that are actually coming to pass right now that he, he said, this is the direction it's going. So I just think, you know, people who navigate between cultures or worlds, uh, there's an insight that they gain from doing that, that if you're fully immersed in just one, you, sometimes you can't see the forest because of the trees, you know? Yeah. And by the way, I'm not trying to put myself on the level of John Cobb. Uh, (laughs) I think you're on the level of John Cobb. I have noticed that, it's sort of like um, I, I tend to speak ahead of my time. And yeah. uh, sometimes that's very painful because people don't get what you're saying. Yeah. What's what's next topic for you? Something that's happened in your lifetime? Well, uh, all this sort of in, runs in the same era. I think, you know, for me, from 1968 to 1974 were the most formative years of my whole life. Um, so, uh, in, in all, everything I'm talking about, I just actually realized that all of these things are in the same era, but, um, probably the next thing, um, was the hippie movement. You know, it was all of a sudden everybody, you know, you had these people who were given permission to like get high, you know, smoke dope, do drugs, um, have sex with each other. You know, and remember you coming out of this purity culture of, of uh, our parents yeah. and it was like, you know, free love. Yeah. What? Oh, okay. Yeah. I want to be a part of that, you know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then rock and roll, yeah. drug, sex, and rock and roll. I mean, this was the, the uh, mantra of this era of the hippie movement sure. and uh, people were living in community. And then and of course they were eating health food. And of course they were trying to protect the planet. And so it just seemed like a lot of good stuff along with this drug, sex and rock and roll. And then rock and roll uh, really, I mean, you had rock and roll in the, in the fifties and the sixties, but it was, it was in the late sixties and early seventies that I think it hit its peak and, uh, and then, and there, you know, and sort of the guitar was king at that time, you know, whereas in the eighties, it moved to be a synthesizer and a drum machine. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you had people like Jimi Hendrix and, you know, you had, uh, Jimmy Page and you know, Eric Clapton and all these people, um, who would, uh, you know, like just go on these riffs with their guitars. And, and then, and I, of course, got in a rock and roll band at that time uh, in my life and was trying to emulate these people and, you know, entertain and just get lost in the music. So, um, yeah, that was a, that was a very influential time in my life. It's still, um, uh, you know, I hear some of these songs and they instantly take me back and bring, 
back this whole era, right? Of uh, yeah. of a different way of thinking about life. So was it was some of it harmful? Yes, it was. But um, yeah. you know, it actually was a lot of fun. Man, you know it's funny. My mom was part of that same generation, and in my home growing up we weren't allowed to listen to secular music. So non-Christian music, except my mom's record collection. So I would listen to bread, uh, iron butterfly, uh, Jim Croce, Steve, um, James Taylor, Bob Dylan. I knew all beach boys. I knew all of that music from that era, but I didn't know any of the music that my peers were listening to. <laughs> right. So the ones you listened, except for Iron Butterfly, uh, were not, there were very soft, right? Oh. Uh, David Gates and Bread. Um, yeah. Okay. All those were sort of soft rock. Uh, put Cat Stevens in that category. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, but but Iron Butterfly, that, that's a yeah. whole different thing. I'm surprised to even hear that was in that same mix because, you know, these are people who did, you know, a 16-minute drum solo. In a Gata DeVita. In a Gata DeVita, man. Yeah, one whole side of the album was just <laughs> that song. You know? That's true. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we had more in that vein. I just, I uh, haven't thought about this in a long time and I, I'm, I'm just pulling off the top of my head, the bands that we used to listen to, but good gravy. That's hilarious. Yeah, and then the, but when, what went along with those then of course were the concerts, this is the concert area when, mm -hmm. when it got really big. And so, you know, I would see people like Bob Seger and oh, Mitch yeah. Ryder and the Detroit wheels and the Almond brothers and Dr. John and, um, the Doors and, you know, uh, Can Heat and, yeah. you know, all of these bands I got to see in person. And uh, sometimes just at summer festivals where you could sort of like walk right up to the stage, you know. Oh, boy. And um, and, and everybody's passing, you know, uh, marijuana around. <laughs> and, uh, you know, women are walking around without their tops on. And it was just sort of like, a, you know, a new society we were creating. Wow. Right? It was the idea. It's like, well, this is pretty cool. That was fun to hear you talk about. Men walked around without their tops on too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, my third and final one comes in slightly after that era. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say as a backlash reaction to that era. So background story. A couple months ago, I was on a long bike ride. And so I had downloaded an audible book that I wanted to listen to as I rode uh, to sort of take my mind off some of the long miles. And it was a book called uh, The Evangelicals. And uh, the subtitle is The Struggle to Shape America. And it was written in 2017 by Francis Fitzgerald. So I'm listening to this thing and it's basically explaining to me everything about my childhood and my formative years. And then, you know, when I got called to ministry and I started in uh, the group that I was working with, it's basically just explaining to me the background behind almost everything up until the last 10 or 15 years. And I, it has been so helpful. I mean, it's written from a fairly, 
I would call it kind or generous perspective, not, not necessarily a critical perspective, just sort of a, a fact finding. So we get to this one chapter about how evangelicals who started out not to be in the anti-abortion movement, how they got into it. And I'm listening. It's sort of fascinating. And then it gets to this one part where in 1984, there was a film made called Silent Scream. And evangelicals were early adopters of technology. And this is when the VCR was first coming out. And they were pretty expensive back then. It was a new technology for playing videotapes on your television. And they mailed to every church that was open to it, or maybe, I don't know if they sent it unsolicited, but I remember 1984, suburban Chicago, we were uh, evangelical and we got a VCR. Our church was given a VCR by this group with this tape. We had to show the movie and then we got to keep the VCR. Wow. That's crazy. Yes. I mean, talk about an inducement. They, they knew how to do the propaganda. Um, But, but you know what? That reminds me the fundamentals, which are the, the right. books that were given uh, the fundamentals of uh, religion, uh, by, which basically were the fundamentals of fundamentalism as we know it during right. the progressive split, uh, progressive and fundamentalist split in the early part of the um, 20th century. Right. Those were sent out to pastors across the whole nation, too. Yeah, there were, though, and so though 19, 1911 or 12, I think. And it was funded by um, some brothers who had oil money down in Texas. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is like, they probably learned from that, you know, Hey, if we want people to watch it, we got to send them VCRs. Yeah. So the two funny things about this is, you know, I remember we had Sunday night church. So we went to church twice on Sunday and we had this thing called Vespers at 6 PM on Sunday night. And, um, we showed that movie, Silent Screen. I remember watching it. I would have been in middle school, junior high. Uh, I remember watching it, and I had never seen, obviously, anything like it. I mean, this wasn't like a movie shown in movie theaters or something, but I remember watching it and just how deeply it impacted me and then listening t- recently to this book, this Audible book, to just remember how... You know, I remember the tide turning from us never talking about this issue to being deeply invested in this issue. So, I mean, it had it paid off them giving out these VCRs with the the tape paid off because it converted people to this cause who became very passionate. And obviously, up till this day, where Roe v. Wade is being contested. And you just think like that happened in my lifetime. I actually remember that being introduced to us as an issue and then us becoming passionate about the issue that I experienced that I was on the, on the receiving end of that propaganda move. And that's fascinating to just think like, Oh, I saw the effect of that. That's wild. So, yeah. And I'm glad you said propaganda because what they were really after the form formulators of this 
was not just to inform you and educate you. They were after one, a political movement, mm-hmm. two, a way to make lots of money. Mm-hmm. And so people like James Dobson and Focus on the Family and Absolutely. others made millions and millions off of their anti-abortion crusades. Right. And they were late converts to the cause. I mean, up to, in 1983, it was really seen as just a Catholic concern. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just wild to think about. Total side note. One of the benefits of getting the VCR is that as a family, we would uh, sometimes on like a Thursday night, we would rent a movie for family night and we would go to the church building and in the fireside room, we would watch a movie that we had rented because we couldn't afford a VCR on our own. But we, but that enabled us to watch movies. I can, I can tell you all sorts of movies I watched in 84 and 85 on that VCR. At, at church. Now, what if that movie had a bad swear word or a sexual scene in it and you were in church? What would, have you, what would you all have done? Well, we were only allowed to rent PG movies. I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't even know what I would have. I mean, we would have just taken a, a we would have gasped. Just <gasps> pulled it out, maybe. Yeah, we yeah we probably would have had to stop the movie and talk about it. I... <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, that that is that's really informative. I'm I'm glad you shared that. That's uh, something I didn't know. All right, and then you get uh, you get one more. You get the last one. Yeah. Again, this is all mixed in at the same time. I mean, we, there was so much social upheaval when I was in these formulative years mm-hmm. that it's hard to just put it all into focus. I mean, you know, there was the women's movement, the burn, burn the bra movement, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, some people might not even know about that. You know, they think of women's movement and they think of, you know, the, uh, you know, the, um, the one back in the you know late 1800s, you know the right. The, so, uh, but no. So, in there was a women's movement in the 70s and 60s, and and uh, um, you know, gay folks were starting to come out of the closet. Right. And uh, you know, um, art is taking all kinds of new expressions and new books, and you know, just all of this stuff happening. The war, uh, the assassinations. Mm. Um, the um yeah so so all this is going on and in the midst of all this there's also like the the back black panther movement there's the the um uh brown panther movement uh with uh, uh latinx peoples um but there's also aim the american indian movement right and that had a profound effect on me huh. because you know i i was um not living in a uh, Indian community when all this was happening, but I identified as a native person. Mm. And so to, to watch aim and the things that happened, I was already receiving, I think from maybe the ninth or 10th grade, um, something called the Aquasasne notes, which were put out at the Aquasasne reserve, Mohawk reserve. And uh, the editor and ends up being like one of the most influential people and my thinking of anybody, the editor was John Mohawk and uh, John Mohawk's writings and uh, his clips that I've seen on recordings and things have probably impacted me more than any other thinker. Wow. Um, he was a, I would call him 
and this doesn't do justice, but an elder philosopher farmer. Mm. Um, so uh, gave me something to aspire to. Um, and uh, he, uh, he, they put out the Aquasasne notes and, um, and it was all the radical stuff that was happening and, and opinion about it and all that sort of stuff. And I, man, I had all the, you know, and then I had all the posters, Indian posters up in my room and everything. And then in 1970, in 1972, something uh, happens uh, called the Trail of Broken Treaties. And uh, I don't remember seeing a whole lot of publicity about that. I knew it was going on, um, but they weren't covering it on national news too much. Then they took over the BIA building, the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in Washington, D.C., and then that got some press. But after that came Wounded Knee. Mm. This is the takeover of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, uh, by the American Indian Movement. And it was a siege that lasted for uh, a long time. I don't remember how many months, but um, the it, it involved the feds and military and um there were people killed as a result, uh, and um, on both sides. Um, but but Wounded Knee had been the site, of course, of a massacre um, in the 1890s, and um, uh, now it was being you know taken over again to sort of as a as a way of protest. And so I wanted to be a part of Wounded Knee, but I I never did uh, get out and do that and. Uh, um, I had my own reasons, but, uh, yeah, I always regretted that, but, um, but that sort of, uh, was at this era. And then the next year, the next year as uh, a young, uh, native person, um, a group called Redbone came out with a, uh, I think it was a number one hit. And there's these long haired Indian guys, you know, most of the time dressed in their buckskin and they're playing on the midnight special, which was like the big show on television that everybody stayed up late to watch, you know, and, and uh, that song was called come and get your love. And uh, everybody knows it. It, it. When you hear it, it starts down, 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 down. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and that was the first time that I ever saw native people on stage playing, you know, uh, rock and roll. And, uh, it just sort of opened my eyes up to new possibilities. And, um, yeah, so that, that whole era and the aim movement, um, uh, maybe, uh, gave me encouragement, I guess we would call it. Mm. Yeah. To, uh, to pursue, um, those things in my own life. And yeah, so that was the, that was the, uh, the other thing. But again, I say, you know, all of this is like, you know, between 1968 and 1974, you know, and basically that takes me through junior high and high school. And that's when, um, you know, uh, we were not oblivious to the times. They were just all, everything was happening at once all around us. Wow. That's incredible that all of that happened in, in sort of that one condensed window. Yeah. Yeah. A very impactful time. I mean, uh, th there's nothing, I don't think there's been anything else like it since. Mm. Yeah. One of those 
movement, one of those moments where culture shifts, that yeah. there's a, a tearing or a rupturing or a fracturing, however you want it, but it's movement. Yeah, things just weren't the same anymore. Wow, well, this has been fun. I, um, we did not compare notes ahead of time. I didn't know what you were bringing today. So this has been absolutely fascinating to hear your reflections on. And uh, we would love to hear from you listeners. What's something that has happened in your lifetime that has deeply impacted you that we may not talk about or even know about uh, much? Uh, we would love to hear from you. So you can email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. You can post on the Facebook page. You can post right on our uh, website, piecingitalltogether.com in the show notes there. Please let us know. And if you're a Patreon supporter, feel free to contact us through Patreon and we'll make sure to read uh, some of your reflections in a future episode. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love it. It enables us to keep doing this and hosting these conversations. So you can find that in the show notes there. We are so grateful for those who support the show. Yeah, and if you like what you're hearing or if you think others would be interested, please share our podcast with other folks. That'd be wonderful. Well, this has been fun. and It has been. <laughs> Peace out then.